Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host a channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Carol Gould. Her new book is titled Interactive Democracy, The Social Roots of Global Justice. It has just been published by Cambridge University Press. Gould is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Political Science at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Contemporary advances in technology have in many ways made the world smaller. It is now possible for vast numbers of geographically disparate people to interact, communicate, coordinate, and plan. These advances potentially bring considerable benefits to democracy greater participation, more inclusion, easier dissemination of knowledge, and so on. Yet they also raised unique challenges, as that same technology that facilitates interaction also enables enhanced surveillance, as well as new forms of exclusion. In Interactive Democracy, Carol Gould aims to develop a conception of democracy that acknowledges the new democratic possibilities, while being attuned to the need to protect human rights, cultural difference, and individual freedom. The result is a fascinating discussion of modern democracy. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Carol Gould. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Well, thank you for joining me on New Books and Philosophy. My pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into our podcast. My guest is Carol Gould, and we'll be talking about her new book. It's titled Interactive Democracy, The Social Roots of Global Justice. Now, in this book, Carol builds upon the philosophical framework that she's been developing throughout her career and through a span of uh, several important books and articles. Um, And she here is turning her attention to some pressing and in some cases still emerging problems confronting democracy worldwide. Uh, More specifically, Carol is interested in articulating a viable ideal of democracy in light of some difficulties that are posed by globalization, uh, globalized poverty and inequality, and certain technological advances that both enable enhanced opportunities for communication, but also facilitate enhanced surveillance and other forms of monitoring. Interactive Democracy presents some big ideas, and it's a relatively concise uh, book. I highly recommend it, uh, and there's lots to talk about. Um, But first, Carol, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, okay. I'm originally from New York City, <clears throat> and uh, where I still live, mostly. Um, and uh, presently, I teach at, uh, I'm a distinguished professor at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of City University of New York um, in philosophy and political science. 
Um, my trajectory began um, as a student in, in philosophy, that is, as a student at the University of Chicago, where I was forced to declare myself in my first year as to whether I was a Platonist or an Aristotelian, <laughs> as everyone had to commit to one or the other. Uh, not really being sure at all, I uh, took a bunch of uh, courses, uh, focusing a lot on, on the classics, but also um, having the opportunity to study with some great professors, including um, a graduate course that I took as an undergraduate with Hannah Arendt, which was called Reconsideration of Basic Moral Propositions from Socrates to Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> But I also studied with Richard McKeon and had a good exposure to um, Dewey as well as Aristotle and to um, pluralistic approaches in philosophy. And I was very interested in that time in philosophy in relation to psychology, and I studied some phenomenology. Um, I went on at Yale and got a good grounding in history of philosophy, uh, but also was very influenced uh, by um, the late 60s um, social movements and um, the new forms of participatory democracy that were uh, coming into prominence and at the time. So I began to reflect more on, uh, especially after, well, after graduate school, um, well, I'd studied a little bit of Hegel there, but I began to reflect a lot on um, how social relations are, are um, related to our understanding of ourselves as individuals. And um, oh, my entire trajectory has really been an investigation of the relation between our individuality and our social embeddedness and social interconnectedness. Uh, so I went on in my first book, uh, well, bef even before my first book, I did this edited collection um, on feminist philosophy, which was the first collection on feminist philosophy ever, uh, which I co-edited with my uh, partner, Mark Swartowski. Um, and that uh, my early work there suggested the need to for philosophy to incorporate a conception of difference. Um, so in contrast with the prevailing views of just emphasizing women's equality, I was also interested in developing a conception of difference, including introducing this notion of concrete universality, which has subsequently I've appropriated even in recent work. Um, but then my main work was a book on Marxist social ontology uh, with a subtitle of individuality and community in Marxist theory of social reality. Um, focusing on his work with Grundrisse, uh, and I developed there a notion of social ontology or the theory of the nature of social reality, which has played a role in my subsequent thinking. Um, of course, very important was the critique of domination and exploitation, both drawing from feminist philosophy and from Marxist philosophy, and I've continued to, to theorize about that. Um, and then just highlighting my, my subsequent books, there's been a lot of other, you know, both teaching and articles. But in terms of the, that trajectory, the next one was rethinking democracy, because I saw that um, that if we're going to be critical of, of domination and exploitation, uh, it also uh, requires us to consider an alternative uh, in which people would be uh, treated as equal agents. And that seemed to me as in a way that I think we may discuss even today with respect to my present book involves a notion of um, 
of equal rights to participate in decisions where those where we're engaged in collective activities with others. So that to me was a justification for democracy extending not just to politics, but to economic and social contexts as well. And um, then in quite a few years later, I published Globalizing Democracy and Human Rights, a book that investigated the democratic deficit that's involved with globalization. And I extended my conceptions from rethinking democracy to the broader global context, investigating how um, theory of human rights can frame democratic decisions in uh, transnational context and um, as well. And finally, um, so I should be brief, I've uh, just been brought to this point of uh, publishing this new book. Meanwhile, editing a bunch of other things, uh, especially concerning um, the internet uh, book, uh, which was presciently called The Information Web. and um, and other books, Cultural Identity and the Nation State and follow ups on my work in feminism about gender and a book beyond beyond domination and so forth. And I edit the Journal of Social Philosophy. Very important journal, I should oh, say. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> which keeps me up to date with recent developments in social in social theory and social philosophy, which is a real core emphasis throughout my work. Well, excellent. Um, And uh, uh, some of um, what you've just said about not only the breadth of your work, but um, some of the features of your philosophical education um, come through in this book. And I I wanted to start, if we if I may, by sort of asking you a a methodological question, which is where I usually like to begin uh, in these interviews. Um, you know, as you note uh, in in the book Interactive Democracy, and there's a couple of places where you where you, where you make mention of this, um, a lot of contemporary political philosophy um, begins by nominating what we might think of as a master concept, from which all analyses of other concepts is supposed to follow. Um, you know, many people listening will recognize the strategy and typical candidates for the master concept are justice or, or fairness uh, or equality or in some cases liberty or natural rights. Um, in some places, democracy even serves this role. Um, but your approach, uh, both in this book and, and, and throughout your work, as, as I know it, um, you know, consciously resists this. Um, you seem to think, uh, and some places in this book you indicate um, that you think the central concepts and values, freedom, justice, equality, democracy, um, have to be thought about or theorized all at once or together. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this commitment or maybe some of the pitfalls that you see with the um, with with the alternatives? Uh, well, that's an interesting question and a difficult one philosophically. But uh, yes, it. I think it's, the situation is even more severe in the sense that often people will simply theorize one concept. I mean, there has been really um, not and not even really consider the others all that much. Um, so I think you're a bit charitable in your culture. Um, and of course, not everyone. And there are uh, exceptions and very strong philosophers who do touch on all of them from some perspective. And I guess I, I would say I do that, too, in a certain sense, and that it isn't just a 
kind of radically pluralistic approach in which uh, all concepts are, are equivalent. Of, of course, you're not suggesting that either. But um, I, I think it's problematic. And, and part of the reason we haven't made as much progress as possible in the area of social and political thought is to just focus on one concept. And of course, the leading one has been justice over these past years and then global justice, which is certainly a good extension of it. But but it's these other notions are, are really very important. And I believe that it's important to be in a way systematic about it and to advance a view that interrelates core concepts. And in fact, I would say uh, the main ones for me, well, I guess there's five, uh, is not just justice, but but freedom and um, human rights, democracy, and also solidarity. Those are the key notions. Um, so in part, my view is explicitly philosophically systematic. But in addition, I use a distinctive methodology, which um, I think has been underused, which is uh, what I would call a dialectical methodology, which has uh, pervaded my work, um, which is a, a, the, um, a method of proceeding that attempts to uh, see strengths in even in competing views and to um, develop a more comprehensive and innovative framework within which these insights and and principles have a place. Um, and I think this view is important philosophically. It's also important in practice as a way of uh, um, trying to, if not overcome conflicts, in some ways deal with them. So it isn't just a matter of compromise, but it's a matter of recognizing the strengths in existing views and existing conceptions and interrelating them within a framework that is new and within which they have, have a place. Well, excellent. So great. Let's pick up on that, what you just said about the, the framework, because as I had mentioned a moment ago, uh, interactive democracy uh, builds on uh, what we might think of as uh, a political philosophical framework that you've been developing over the course of of, of, of your major publications, um, and um, and tries to apply that framework or expand that framework to some some new and emerging problems. Um, so let's begin there, and maybe uh, you know, as the book begins with trying to lay out the philosophical backdrop, the, this framework, as it were, that informs uh, your analyses. Um, so we've got, uh, let me just sort of throw some of the, uh, the, the leading terms out. We have a, a social ontology that countenances individuals in relations. Um, and this conception of individuals in relations enables you, at least as I, as I read the way this hangs together, enables you to give a, uh, an analysis of um, freedom as uh, equal positive liberty uh, and that conception of freedom then connects up with uh, your conception of uh, democracy and ultimately uh, human rights and uh, some of the things that you talk about in later parts of the book. But why don't we begin to try to sort of uh, help us see how that broad framework sort of hangs together. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the ontology and the individuals and uh, your conception of freedom? Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. Um so the social ontology idea is uh, in part that every social and political theory or philosophy, it seems to me, does have 
a kind of ontological commitment to a conception of individuals and relations. Um, I developed this in earlier work, and I'm um, aiming to present an account that goes beyond the abstract individualism that has been uh, thought to and I think does uh, characterize traditional um, liberal theory and liberal individualist theory um, and a more relational conception. So my specific social ontology that I'm advancing operates with the basic entities being understood to be individuals and relations with hyphenated. Um, And it's a notion that um, at one and the same time does give weight to individuality by proposing uh, that individuals should be understood as, as self-transformative beings, as having the capacity for agency in the sense of intentional activity, a kind of that can be embodied in their actions. It isn't a purely intellectual kind of thing by any means, but also to see people as constituted through their social relations in the sense that although they can have the capacity to choose and change and transform their relations, they basically are constituted by these social relations. Um, and so it um, thereby gives weight both to individuality and sociality in a way that I think is very suggestive and ultimately can support both individual rights, but also stronger forms of social cooperation as necessary to our individuality. Uh, I've also extended this in, in my more recent work to really uh, emphasize the possibilities of cultural or collective self-transformation over time so it isn't only a characteristic of, of individuals. I call this a conception of freedom in the sense that uh, freedom to me has two senses, a very um, elementary one, at, which is ingredient in our very forms of purposive activity of of um, being intentional and transforming ourselves through, in and through our activity. So it isn't, again, just rational choice or something like that, but it's the form of human activity as developing over time. Uh, but I also argue that this requires a conception of what I call positive freedom. Not only does it require the absence of interference for people to be able to transform themselves, as in classic notions of negative liberty or negative freedom, but it involves our ability to uh, make use of conditions, to have and make use of a set of various conditions that enable us to to um, to be effective, uh, to have effective freedom, positive freedom in the sense of effective freedom. Um, so this comes out of a broader tradition, uh, which I see, um, in, for example, um, which I see coming in some ways from Marx, but it includes figures like Sen, C.B. McPherson um, and um, Cohn, um, who all would argue that we need effective freedom and not just this capacity, freedom as capacity to transform ourselves. So if we want to go to China, we have to have, uh, you know, the means to do so. We need access to material conditions, uh, in, uh, including means, especially means of subsistence and health and education as social conditions also um, that enable us to to develop ourselves over time or flourish as persons. So this view sort of in an Aristotelian fashion kind of, oops, <laughs> that's right, Plato versus ourselves. <laughs> But anyway, incorporates, um, uh, emphasizes the development of 
people over time in and through their activity. And it's kind of Dewey and in that way also, or John Stuart Mill, a notion of self-development of a person over time. But here I give it a very uh, social conception in various ways, because among the conditions are, are not just material needs, but the need to be recognized uh, plays a, an important role. Um, I actually, the notion of equal positive freedom is actually my principle of justice, not, but freedom is interpreted as positive freedom. And I think I have an argument as to why we should regard this as equal based on the idea of our rec- of the equal agency of persons. So this has a kind of cosmopolitan commitment to people's universal equality in some in some uh, very general sense, which I think I argue also that we recognize this in our everyday interaction, even even where where people are dominated or oppressed. Um, there's a tacit recognition of their agency in this bare sense of uh, this intentional activity. Uh, for example, I like the Goffman example of vehicular interaction where we avoid bumping into people, we catch their eyes and move the other way. These elementary reciprocities of everyday life seem to me something that we build on in our normative notions of um, more uh, richer conceptions of equality and justice. And so let me just ask then uh, about the the principle of um, equal positive liberty as a conception of justice is that – uh, does that claim that uh, individuals have um, an equal entitlement to uh, resources or um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about maybe what the distributive implications uh, of that would be? Right. So it isn't only a principle of distributive justice in the narrow sense, because I think um, even in terms of economic uh, distributive justice, one needs to look at the organization of the production process as well as the distribution, which is one way I would expand it. But as, as, a, as a very general notion, I, I like the idea of conditions of both the absence of constraining conditions and the availability of enabling conditions because it's broader than just resources and it's not just a set of goods and it captures, it enables us to capture also the range of social conditions, for example, the need to be recognized or the need for cultivating relationships that is omitted from traditional theories of distributive justice. Um, So it certainly includes access to material conditions um, like means of subsistence uh, but it, it uh, points to a range uh, that enables us also to avoid some of the uh, one-sided views that have characterized the theories of justice. Um, so it includes notions of sort of the democratic e- equality kinds of ideas of recognition, but it also captures redistributive uh the importance of distribution of means of subsistence. So I, I wouldn't want to just go towards resources as a notion. Mm-hmm. Um, well, great. So now tell us how th- this uh, framework then, um, what does this have to say about uh, human rights and then ultimately democracy? Ah, perfect transition. Uh, <laughs> because I think that human rights specify these basic conditions. Now, by that I mean, I'm giving a kind of um, richer conception of human rights than merely as legal rights. 
And moreover, they're not merely moral rights that or um, that would be good to uh, to uh, to realize. Um, I take a kind of social approach um, here and see human rights as, first of all, as specifying these various conditions uh, that people require in order to develop themselves over time, individually or collectively. Um, and so I think the notion of human rights, which has happily been at least recognized in principle in international law and increasingly constitutionalized, um, even in regional contexts like the uh, European Union, um, do speak to these importance of these conditions for agency. Uh, but my notion of human rights really differs from most of the existing ones. And in one of the chapters of the book, The Human Rights and Social Ontology, I develop my own view in contradistinction to both the individualist views of James Griffin in terms of a kind of narrow idea of persons um, or uh, Gawirth's pregnant notions. I, I show how my own justification differs a little from somewhat from his. And, and then I also um, take up two more social conceptions and of um, Habermas and Bites and show how my view uh, also differs from theirs. I see human rights um, as basically social claims that we make on each other uh, for a given our fundamental interdependence and mutual neediness for the realization of these basic conditions. Um, but I see them as best realized um, through more delimited institutions, political, economic, social, that will enable people worldwide to, to realize these and to have access to these uh, basic conditions, to which I, as a fundamentally egalitarian um, perspective think that they have prima facie equal claims to these conditions, to these basic conditions. Uh, one other note is I distinguish between basic and non-basic human rights, even though the non-basic ones are essential. They're still, I think, um, the basic human rights are conditions for any life activity, whatever, um, any human life activity, whatever, and uh, non-basic would be though still essential human rights conditions for further flourishing uh, of persons. So it plays an important role in my in my approach in this rejuvenated sense in which um, in which uh, they um, speak to our social claims on each other. OK, so um, is there a human right to democracy? Uh, yes. Next question. <laughs> Excellent. Say more. <laughs> oh, OK. Um, because I have this notion of um, a social ontology, um, I believe that participation, that taking part in or um, uh, common act, what I call common activities, which it turns out is a notion that Hannah Arendt used, but I guess I must have osmosed it in her class. Um, <laughs> The idea that um, it was a part the taking part in or um, having a range of common activities is a necessary is necessary for people's self-development over time. Um, so by common activities, I mean um, very broadly activities that are oriented to shared goals, to the realization of shared goals. Uh, and. I think that we do, uh, you know, historically and socially have a very large range of these 
common activities. I argue that where people are engaged in common activity, um, given their equal positive freedom and given that this is one of the conditions for their freedom, one of the basic conditions for their freedom, people have a right to equal have equal rights of participation in these common activities if they are to be free. That means that they have to co-determine them. They can't obviously decide on their own uh, how this common act or joint activity should proceed. So this, to me, is a, an, is a very general um, justification for democracy in, in multiple contexts, including in smaller scale social and um, economic contexts. And later in the book, I argue for worker management in firms as a very important expression of democracy. But as a human right, I think that given that political states are prime examples of instantiations of common activities, that people do have equal rights of participation within them. Um, and that since it is uh, one of the basic conditions of our freedom, it ought to be recognized fully as a human right, which it has to some degree, although they were a little reluctant to talk about it in terms of democracy in the Universal Declaration. But clearly that's what's at stake. Um, of course, my conception of democracy is broader and richer than merely majority rule and um, uh, voting. And that's, of course, one of the big problems that the book is addressing is that uh, democracy has become uh, so weakened, even in the United States, uh, by the power of money and uh, by its delimitation to just voting at best which, of course, is not even recognized as a general right always, um, that we really need to, um, to take democracy in, in its fuller sense as involving opportunities for participation and deliberation that I explore later in the book. Um, but there's a second and more contemporary uh, aspect of democracy as a human right that I also explore in this chapter, which has to do with, given globalization, um, people at a distance are increasingly affected by the decisions of large-scale actors, whether they be nation-states, corporations, or the institutions of global governance. And I think we need to figure out how to give people a voice where they are affected and they're importantly affected, even in their possibilities of fulfilling their basic human rights, by the decisions of these large uh, global actors. Uh, and there I propose a somewhat different criterion than the common activities one. I use the all affected principle, but uh, in a particular way, not everyone can be considered. Um, not, I mean, we can't simply say that everyone has to decide everything. Uh, but the idea of being affected gives people um, a right to dem what I call democratic input into the decisions by these uh, large um, global actors. And input there doesn't just mean vote, right? No, I think it um, it can mean uh, opportunities to participate in the deliberations of global governance institutions. Um, and it also might support, although there are problems with going in this direction, differential um, in inputs in a way that the idea of membership 
in a single body, which requires equal rights of participation, uh, does not. But I see it as supplementing the common activities justification. And so we need to develop new forms of representation transnationally, as I argue in the later sections of the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's then move on, because um, I take it that um, these um, uh, these ideas about uh, enhanced conceptions of democracy to handle new globalization, uh, the new facts on the ground about globalization, um, is all in the service of an ideal of of global justice. Um, and that very ideal is um, uh, sometimes criticized on the grounds that um, duties of justice, global or local for that matter, um, are based on some kind of um, particularist conception of obligation um, that we could owe duties of justice only to our fellow countrymen or compatriots. Um, you claim that um, there's a viable conception of global justice that um, is rooted in a conception of solidarity. And uh, then you try to show, uh, you argue that um, solidarity can be understood transnationally without um, becoming too diluted or, or on the one end or too demanding on the other. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the conception of solidarity that drives your view about global justice? Uh, yes, that's a, a really important uh, theme in my book. In fact, it leads off the second section, which is about the social roots of global justice, uh, right. because I want to privilege social interrelations as an important um, avenue towards um global justice. And by that, I don't mean uh, so much interpersonal relations, although that does have some role, but more um, the connections uh, that are involved in social movements, in civil society organizations, and in this phenomenon of standing in solidarity with with others, even at a distance. Uh, We saw this very recently in connection with you know, the terror attacks and efforts to stand in solidarity with the French uh, for what that was worth. But also you find it within um, uh, responses to um, um, hurricanes and natural disasters, but also in efforts like the uh, anti-sweatshop movement that attempt to counter uh, structural injustice and forms of oppression. We find what could be regarded as transnational solidarities. In fact, what I regard as networks of um, solidarities across borders. I think we need to theorize this new form um, because increasingly we're interconnected with others at a distance, but not simply by being integrated within new communities with them, although that is something of a a phenomenon, both online and ecologically in these uh, new communities. But increasingly, we find that um, that social movements or civil society organizations stand in solidarity with others with an aim of uh, of justice in view, with the aim of overcoming oppression or eliminating suffering. And so I think we need to theorize this new form of solidarity, which is not simply the more traditional um, solidarity with members of a single community or um, group, whether it be, uh, you know, um, a team or a gang, <laughs> a nation state, um, 
And so I, I present a, a normative conception in that it's oriented to justice in which um, solidarity involves mutual concern and mutual aid um, in which we defer to those that we're trying to help or that are most in, most uh, urgently affected by the injustice in question. And uh, we um, bend our efforts. So it's not just a, uh, based on fellow feeling, but it's also a disposition to act in support of these others. Um, and I also try to show how we can still have this as a particularistic kind of notion, but one with a universalistic intent <laughs> with an aiming at a conception uh, of justice. Um, so I, I think that this is a, a very suggestive and important notion that shows us how we can actually work to realize global justice on the ground. And it works in the service of human rights, too, potentially, in the sense that it, it's based on both um, empathy with, with distant others, but also an appreciation of their, of their, of their rights. And it's a necessary en enhancement to a legalistic or inst purely institutionalist approaches to realizing global justice and democracy. And is there an element of um, what's sometimes called the care ethic or care ethics uh, in this conception? Yes. Um, yes, I draw on feminist theory, both in the conception of solidarity and in the a later chapter on care and recognition in global justice. Uh, but I think that the notion and, and also the, uh, the conception of empathy that's come out in part of, uh, of care ethics in which one imaginatively um, projects oneself into the situation of the other and feels with them. Um, uh, but um, I think the notion of solidarity is a more political conception that has advantages over care for this mm -hmm. framework. Uh, because it can apply not just to individuals, which has been the main context for theorizing empathy and even care in families. Um, it can apply to groups that can stand in solidarity with other groups. So I draw to some degree on labor movement solidarity as a model in which, um, you know, unions might try to stand in solidarity with, with other with other working people and provide shared resources and mutual aid, but in which ideally, at least not necessarily in practice, but in which they would defer to the to the interpretation of needs and interests of those they're trying to help. I think this has much more general applicability than simply to um, to labor unions, though. So I, I articulate it as a very a much more general notion. I should add that um, one of the difficulties with extending solidarity transnationally that I attempt to come to grips with uh, in this entire part of the book is really the problem of cross-cultural um, understanding and misunderstanding, which I imagine we'll get to later in our conversation, but it has uh, special problems um, for solidarity in the sense that a lot of the um, 
a lot of the movements that we've seen, or especially civil society organizations, involve uh, relatively privileged people helping or trying to help those less well off. And, and that's where a notion of deference comes into play. Um, and also, I think, requires us to, to address these issues of, um, of differences in cultural perspective that I take up uh, later in the book. Um, and there, there are real problems with how to conceive of solidarity in a way that's still particular, but also we don't want to really open it to, um, to incorporate hate groups and uh, exclusion. And so I developed the notion in a way that uh, sees the, uh, the normative sense of solidarity as an inclusive one, as open to the participation of others in ways that I guess I go on to develop later. Good. Why don't we um, then turn to uh, some of the um, work that appears uh, in the later chapters of the book and in, in, in the end of part two and then throughout uh, part three. Um, and maybe one way to, to sort of approach this is just to ask, um, I take it that the term interactive democracy, uh, which is the title of the book and also um, becomes uh, uh, the sort of the name of uh, the kind of uh, conception of democracy that you favor. I take it that the term is meant to sort of build on and distinguish uh, uh, your view from um, two reigning uh, conceptions of democracy, the deliberativist conception, and then uh, various kinds of participatory versions of democracy. Um, and I take it that um, one of the features uh, of your view of democracy uh, is that it intends to um, take full account of some of the new possibilities for communication and social action and networking uh, that are made possible by um, social media and other kinds of uh, computer technologies. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about some of those uh, dimensions of the view? Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> interactive democracy has multiple meanings, which I mm, believe is helpful, <laughs> though it could be just confusing. Uh, but it captures um, something very much lacking in present democracy, which is the problem from which the book really uh, takes off, although I also want to relate democracy to global justice in ways that I've sort of tried to indicate a little bit. Um, but uh, the problem is that our present democracy is not very interactive, um, not just because um, it isn't participatory, but, uh, you know, the domination of elites, the bureaucracy, and especially the power of money undercutting in the U.S. at least, undercutting real democracy. So intera interactive suggests a form of democracy that's based on social interaction as opposed to merely uh, being an aggregative counting of votes. I also distinguish my view from deliberative ones, uh, although I think that deliberation is a tremendously important aspect of a democratic process. It isn't constitutive of the conception of democracy that I present. Uh, it's certainly not the form of the justification that I give. Uh, which is tied more to an idea of the activity uh, of persons um, and 
still keep tries to keep a conception of participation firmly in view. So one notion of interactive democracy is a conception of democracy that takes seriously the social social interactions and social cooperation. Another is the interaction among democracies uh, worldwide, which I think is important. Uh, the idea of democratization, which does not support imposing or uh, democracy on anyone, uh, but which I discuss uh, in some sections of the book. But also the new forms of transnational democracy that involve networking, uh, not just networking among democracies, but networking within social movements that aspire to be democratic, um, like Occupy Wall Street or Latin American social movements have been very much in, in the advance of that. And interaction among social, civil society organizations that also operate democratically. But, but very important among, among all of this, within all of these uh, new dimensions of democracy, is in fact the Internet and its interactivity. And so um, interactive democracy also refers to that. And in two chapters, I consider uh, dialogue online and offline and uh, deliberation online and offline across cultures and some of the new problems that, that that poses for us. And also what I call emancipatory networking, which was a term that the Italians gave to me for a conference paper, but I kind of liked it. It's um, <laughs> old fashioned, but uh, does suggest the ways that networking can be used um, to to strengthen and empower people um, in democratic contexts, but also have has a tremendous number of hazards that it poses, as is well known, with with regard to especially surveillance and uh, the elimination of privacy um, online. Right, and and um, one of the um, the related uh, sort of hazards. Um, has to do with well, well, I get maybe they're these are separated. Um, uh, has to do with sort of the ways in which um, uh, these enhanced opportunities for communication and for um, coordinating um, creates all kinds of new opportunities for misunderstanding uh, and also new opportunities for. Um, how should we put it? Uh, interpreting uh, interpreting others in ways that presuppose uh, our own sort of groups, norms, or vocabulary. Um, so you, you seem particularly um, uh, in tune with the ways in which um, uh, the increased facility with which we can communicate can also, um, perhaps unwittingly, even uh, contribute to. Um, uh, the ways in which we um, impose uh, values or commitments on others. Right, right. Yes, uh, thank you for raising that. That's an important theme, especially with regard to the proposals to have online deliberation and dialogue um, with new ideas for forums, uh, which haven't really taken off as much as one might hope, but uh, or even you know, representative polling, which involves deliberation, all of those um, come up against, as, as just ordinary conversation even in social media do, um, to the degree that they involve um, people who are not um, sort of like-minded 
or involve deliberation with people who may not share one's perspective. There is the, there's the problem of using these contested concepts in with different meanings. Uh, and so I want to highlight, I want to find ways of highlighting the differences uh, to even be aware of, of that seems to me useful. Um, and there have been all kinds of fights about Wikipedia and so forth, but it seems to me that if people, that an essential element is what used to be called the critique of ideology, which is this idea of criticism and self-criticism as a necessary aspect of dialogue in which one at least tries to become aware of one's perspectives and one's whether the interests that maybe one is advancing or others are advancing uh, in their and, and their their background perspective. So I think this is tied in also with this notion of empathy, which is not just understanding the other's feelings, but understanding their situation and their concrete context from which they're speaking. Um, this doesn't necessarily mean condoning it or not being critical, but it seems like an essential aspect of dialogue uh, is being um, aware of one's perspective and from which one, one is uh, advancing a view. And it would be great if, if software could be developed to highlight these sort of contested concepts. Uh, I actually was working on a project along those lines, although it didn't get funded. But <laughs> <laughs> Right. I, I, I'm, I remember that from um, you discussed it in the book. It would be a, um, a, a kind of program or a web page that would, in a way, um, uh, help us to understand the, the multiple ways in which um, different kinds of um, um, people with different kinds of political commitments use the same words. Right, right. I, I really think that uh, someone should develop that out there. Uh, it wouldn't be very difficult, actually. But, uh, well, I'm not a computer scientist, so maybe it would be. Uh, but we have to pay more attention to that. Um, and... Um, not just as a matter of words, but uh, the you know the framework that one brings to a discussion. Of course, for that also, people have to be willing to talk to those with whom they disagree. And so far, the internet hasn't encouraged that very much. Um, well, quite the contrary. Right. I mean, it seems to do a lot in the other direction yeah. <laughs> and to more easily enable people to, as as Sunstein puts it, you know, hear louder and louder echoes of their own voices. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, well, along these same lines, though, uh, I, I, I think this is the first time um, I've, I've read a political philosophy book that has a chapter about jokes. Ah. Um, and um, so one of the chapters uh, along the you know, addressing these concerns with, um, you know, multiple voices being inclusive and having more and more people talk to each other about more and more things. Um, there are going to be all kinds of questions about um, how that kind of um, uh, inclusive discourse uh, can be productive. And you have a chapter about humor across cultures. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, um, yes. Also, I, if I could, I wanted to go back a little bit more to the other side of the emancipatory networking, but I can do that sure. after the jokes. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, humor is uh, very interesting because um Jokes, uh, draw, I, I draw in this chapter on Ted Cohn's masterful little book called Jokes, um, and I assemble a wonderful collection of jokes, uh, to try to show, um, to investigate 
actually the title of the chapter is the sociality of, of free speech. So I take um, humor as an example of um, of this sociality, um, and I raise the question of, of what's involved in a joke, and usually it does establish ties within um, a community that understands it. Um, but I, I raise the question whether it would be good if we all understood every everybody's jokes worldwide. You know, should we have a worldwide community of amusement? But that might presuppose that we all have the same culture, so that isn't necessarily desirable, although obviously making the effort to to leap into another's perspective would be a good thing. Um, but I, I investigate there also uh, some of the difficult cases of um, jokes that have been taken to be hate speech, um, and humor, so-called, and try to make my way through that while also um, taking um, the implications for the very for free, free understanding freedom of expression more generally, I try to highlight in addition to the individual justifications that one gives. It seems to me that there are social uh, uses of speech that um, and that show that freedom of expression is also very important for social purposes. I consider also protest jokes and the way they sustain. Uh, political protests through times of adversity, for example, in the Soviet Union, and other social uses of speech, including the discursive Habermasian one, to try to emphasize the connection of freedom of expression to freedom of association and to the ways that it uh, enhances our ability to communicate. Um, this has some important implications for how we would weigh um, and interpret freedom of speech, um, and I consider oppressive uses of speech in this context as well, but I'm not going to tell you how I come out exactly. Um, people can read it. But I think that to look at these social dimensions, and especially humor, is, is a very interesting and important new direction, and it enables us to to consider how the cosmopolitan idea of uh, being a worldwide citizen also has to be taken um, somewhat qualified by the uh, respect for different uh, cultures and communities. And it is interesting, I guess, against the, I guess it's still true to say this sort of thing that um, uh, one of the, the better sources of political commentary, especially in the United States right now, um, are two um, sort of humor shows. Um, yeah. Um, you know, the John Stewart and the, the recently um, uh, concluded uh, Colbert Report, um, these are, are really powerful sources of news for people, but their aim is to be funny. Right, right. I do actually discuss John Stewart and his support for the Egyptian uh, democracy movement uh, in connection with the book. Um, I think there are some hard questions here, though, it's um, that we really need to address about uh, freedom of speech and oppressive speech and using freedom of speech, which I do think is a very important right. Um, also, in, in the interest of advancing um, so, uh, our so sociality and mutual understanding. Right. Um now, did you want to go back and, and, and say something about emancipatory uh, uh, networking? Well, in addition to the deliberative um, uses of the Internet, I think that this whole Web 2.0 thing with user-generated content 
is a very um, promising direction. But so far, it's mostly um, taken the form uh, where it involves sort of political action. Uh, a lot of it is like crowd crowds. Uh, crowdsourcing um, and has had sort of aggregative and rather sporadic attention to different kinds of issues. I just think we need to look more into building up the networking side among um, in, within um, online uses um, that would advance sort of democratic um uh, uses of the internet in ways that is still very, uh, very promising, um, and still has to be developed. It's been applied in sporadically in, um, Ireland and also Iceland with respect to crowdsourced, um, uh, no, sh- um, hmm, reflections on, uh, amendments to the constitution and that kind of thing. But it has a lot of, of promise and possibilities. Uh, which I investigate in 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 that chapter in relation to two alternative models of uh, aggregative versus networking logics, uh, which are not really necessarily differences in technology, but differences in the way we organize ourselves using technologies. Okay, um, so your sort of um, conception of uh, of democracy then is not focused on the state and its apparatus, although it's conscious of how important uh, states uh, are, um, and uh, sees democratic participation as um, not simply the um, activities uh, that go on in voting booths among um, citizens of some particular nation state, but is transnational and border crossing. Um, And so you've got a conception of global democracy that is not a conception or a, a a proposal for a global democratic state. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a little bit wary of um, of simply sort of focusing our transnational democracy on a world state, uh, which worries me because of what I call the Weimar problem or the possibility of electing um, a dictator given right. human right. error. Um, and also the importance, it seems to me, of regions, um, because the, the, there are some, although not all regions are <clears throat> harmonious, and we've seen the problems that Europe, even Europe, the most established region, is having. Uh, I think that regionalization is an important new direction. But there are senses of global democracy that I think are very important, and especially I would emphasize sort of this notion of democracy everywhere in the sense of democracy as a way of life, but also the importance of democracy in economic context, which is a theme in the uh, in the last one of the last chapters uh, concerning democratic management and introducing rights of democratic management within firms and within the global political economy. Uh, my model there is, of course, a very, um, very successful, relatively anyway, experiment of Mondragon in Spain, which is the sixth largest corporation and uh, is self-managed. So I argue for the extension of democracy to all communities that are understand themselves to be communities, including economic firms and in social contexts, as well as in the emerging more um, transnational communities, whether they be ecological or even on the Internet. 
Um, and I think so. And that's one sense of globalizing democracy is demo- uh, which would really be fantastic. And I think is an important direction with one would need um, for regional democracy, also regional human rights agreements, uh, which exist in three places in three contexts of regions, but it's still not uh, pervasive everywhere to uh, because I do think that uh, we still have this problem of potentially um, dictatorships of majorities. So we need to protect individual rights um, through these human rights frameworks. Uh, but still, there are probably there are some um, issues that are truly global and that require, if not global government, certainly advances in global governance, especially our uh, climate change and the challenges posed there that really affect us all as um, as human beings uh, living on this globe. So I think that we we need to move ahead with global governance, but we need to do so in ways that introduce opportunities for democratic participation by those affected and to move global governance institutions from being just expressions of the most powerful uh, nation states and uh, economic actors to being more responsive to people more broadly who are affected by their decisions. Well, Carol, that sounds uh, that sounds wonderful, and you've been um, very generous with your time. Um, may I ask, uh, now that you've um, published uh, Interactive Democracy, uh, what's on the horizon? What, what's your next project? Well, um, just finished an article on um, motivating solidarity with distant others, empathic politics, and the problem of global justice, which mm-hmm. addresses. Uh, how do the problem that people may not care about distantly situated people and uh, or they tend not to and where how to how to motivate what I take to be very this very important solidarity with with others. Um, and part of the answer there is uh, to cultivate a disposition to empathy and I consider um, I consider that in that article as well as taking up sort of the idea of responsibility uh, for distant others, um, drawing on structural injustice and considering Iris Young's view um, also. But what I'm really going on to do is starting work on a new book, which is called Empathic Politics. Um, And uh, I want to really understand more the role that empathy plays in relation to reason in these uh, transnational uh, spheres um, and to figure out also how how uh, this motivation that it might provide can function. And so I take up uh, philosophical views and notions of uh, empathy has been um, considered in relation to deliberate deliberative democracy by some or to justice by others, and I want to really consider um, how we should uh, understand empathy and um, the related emotions of, uh, or the sentiments rather, of sympathy, uh, con- mutual concern, or concern for others in this context, and address what I discussed in um, Rethinking Democracy as the democratic personality, sort of coming back to those basic issues of motivation and of 
um, the active person and the receptive person, which I discussed there, but I want to um, confront a little bit more directly how we should understand reason also in this context. To take seriously the human rights of people at a distance, I think you need both empathy and you need reason to work on it in various ways to correct for the flaws in our empathy and to extend it more universalistically. This doesn't mean that one has to feel empathy with everyone all the time. <laughs> but I think we can cultivate a disposition to empathy, um, to empathizing with people, which also involves a socially critical understanding of their perspective, it seems to me. So, um, but this all has to be doable by people and not too demanding. So that raises some other problems that I also want to address in my next book. Well, that sounds wonderful. I'll keep an eye out for that. And uh, when it appears, uh, maybe we'll have you back on New Books in Philosophy. Ah, that's great. That's uh, something to aspire to and look forward to. Well, thanks for your time, Carol, and thanks for talking to me about uh, interactive democracy. It's been great. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Carol Gould of the City University of New York. We were talking about her new book, Interactive Democracy, The Social Roots of Global Justice, newly published by Cambridge University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.